the questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Before we begin, I want to let you know that tonight's show includes a third short segment. It's the testimonial of a former intelligence agent. In March 1997, an event known as the Phoenix Lights became the most infamous UFO sighting in history. A mile-wide vessel, clearly not man-made, flew slowly and silently over the state of Arizona and was witnessed by 10,000 people, including the governor of Arizona. To date, there has been no reasonable explanation. But for every witness interviewed, the craft was as real as anything they'd ever seen. Their lives were transformed. They now believe that we truly are not alone. However, there is another truth, for I know what they really saw. So after you're done with tonight's interview, proceed to segment three and let me know what you think. It's riveting information, and it shows us how we are living on the precipice of reality. And tonight's special guest returns after three years. His recollection of lifelong encounters with the hybrid being he calls Betty are riveting. By his own admission, he's no longer holding back, but telling what he has experienced and remembered fully. Tonight, he discusses the reckoning with all new facts and content never shared before with the public. We'll discuss the true story of the sad decline and mysterious death of Tobias, plus recent revelations from Betty are disclosed, and the December 8th quote-unquote disclosure from a retired Israeli general and academic, Chaim Hashed. He'll reveal here what he held back till now. Are you ready? You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. And as it's customary, when someone returns to Veritas, we don't have to read their bio. Terry Lovelace is his name. He's a special guest. And I would highly suggest that before you listen to this interview, if you haven't, go back to when we conducted our very first interview. It was a Vox Populi, his very first public appearance, where he discussed incident at Devil's Den. His bio is right on our website at veritasradio.com. His website is terrylovelace.com. And the new book is titled Devil's Den. The Reckoning, which I'm told is number one on Amazon. Terry Lovelace joins us directly from Dallas, Texas. Hello, Terry. Welcome back. How are you? 
Hi, Mel. I'm great, thank you. It's nice to be back with you. It's been, uh, what, three years, right, since we last uh, had you on? And I believe this was your first appearance here. But after that, the world opened for you. Can you tell me, what has, how has the world welcomed your story? You know, Veritas was my first, uh, my first public uh, appearance, my first public uh, speaking engagement about the uh, uh, incident at Devil's Den. And, and I credit it with opening a doorway for me. And uh, um, I'm happy to say that the book went to number one uh, and stayed number one on and off for almost a year. And uh, I've been fortunate. My second book, which I published right around Christmas time, uh, hit number one in new releases and is um, back and forth between uh, being number one and number two. It is now ranked uh, number two in occult and unexplained mysteries, number three in UFOs and number four in occult UFOs. So um, very grateful for that. Well, congratulations. But I remember our last, our first chat I remember I tried to grab as much information from your story. I always do that. I always try to go in chronological order. Just to, do we have no no stones unturned? But more things have occurred. More information has surfaced, and I learned a few things that I didn't know before. Why don't, why don't we begin in chronological order of the things that you didn't say before that you are now saying? Well, there 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 have been things that have happened. Um, there were, there were stories that weren't included in Incident at Devil's Den, uh, specifically the ones about my early childhood. And the reason for that was my editor said, you know, look, you've covered your stuff as that happened to you as a kid already. And, uh, you know, you don't want to make your whole book devoted to your childhood experiences. So, um, you know, and that always uh, that always kind of bugged me. So I, 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 I think that the stories are important. So I, I made sure that they got out in Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Well, they were already written, so that was easy. So you, you are filling the blanks now, basically. Correct, correct. And, you know, if you read the prologue to Incident at Devil's Den, I tell the story about uh, 32-year-old Rodney Letterman from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, who came down with his friend uh, to, to walk the Butterfield Trail, you know, which is the old stagecoach line from 1859. Uh, it's now a paved, it's a, it's a nice nice hiking trail now, paved and, and uh, very easy to, so I hear, I've never been, <laughs> but... Um, Mr. Letterman and a friend were walking and they were a mile or so into their walk. And uh, this is a Saturday afternoon. Rodney realizes uh, um, that he left his inhaler in the truck and he's having an asthma attack. So I asked his friend, would you run back to the truck for me and grab my inhaler? And friend says, sure, no worries. Friend goes back, picks up the inhaler, runs back, and there's no Rodney Letterman, just his cell phone on the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but my cell phone's either in my hand or in my pocket, um, and, and, uh, he knew that it's, it's like a limb now, an extra limb that we'll carry. <laughs> it is, it is. And, and he knew that his friend couldn't have gone very far because he was in the middle of an asthma attack and the terrain's rough off of the trail. So he notifies park officials and they took it very seriously and they started a, uh, investigation. And at the time I published incident at devil's den, he had not been found. There were no details. It was just, he was just, had just vanished. Uh, in March of 2019, uh, there was a young couple walking on the Butterfield Trail, and the, the lady says to her companion, is that an albino turtle? <laughs> and her, her friend says, what? And he looks, and on a log, parallel with the trail, in plain sight, right in the middle, 
is placed what looked what they what she thought was an albino turtle. Um, and he walked. They walked over to investigate. He picked it up and realized it was the top of a human skull, bleached white in the sun. And uh, that's an area that's that's passed by hundreds of people a day. Uh, and it was there, open and obvious, in plain view. And uh, it seems like a message to me. Yeah, the uh, Bartlesville Medical Examiner verified it through DNA evidence that it was, in fact, the very top of Rodney Letterman's skull. Um, and that's all they ever found of him. But I promised an update on Rodney Letterman's story, and, and that's it. Any correlation? Um, before, before we continue, you mentioned him by name, David Polite. Polite is a friend of this show who, by the way, his son recently passed away. So our thoughts and prayer are with the Belides family. But any correlation between, for what, what, what David has written for years, the mysterious disappearances, and any of these stories? You know, it makes sense to me. Yes, I think there's a huge correlation between the two. I think David suspects that uh, and may be reticent to say it out loud, may be reticent to say it publicly. Uh, you know, but I suspect that if if we had a private conversation, he might be a little more can, candid. Um you know, those people go somewhere. Uh, those disappearances, I've read those books. As a matter of fact, volume four in the Missing 411 series is called The Devil is in the Details. Yes. And the history of Devil's Den State Park is laid out in his book. Uh, with You know, going back to the one that I mentioned, the 1946 disappearance of Catherine Van Alst, who was missing for, uh, she was found on the seventh day. The day that it was at the end of that day, it was going to transition from rescue to a recovery. Um, and a uh, young man who was a volunteer from the Arkansas State College, a university nearby named Porter Chadwick, found her on top of a, a cliff or a, like a, a precipice that was 600 some feet in elevation and some miles away from the campsite where she went missing and a place that had been searched twice before. And he was walking around the top of the plateau and he's just calling out Catherine. And she stepped out from underneath a limestone overhang and said, here I am. And he ran over and scooped her up and said, my God, are you okay? And she says, yeah, I'm fine. And he says, well, how did you get up here? And she says, I don't know. I woke up here this morning and I thought I'd just wait for you to come and find me. And you know, there there are stories in the uh, Pittsburgh press that I found independently, also stories in the Kansas City Star. And the mother is quoted as, as saying that her hair was clean, that other than a few insect bites, she was fine. They, uh, She was examined by a medical doctor, found she hadn't lost an ounce of weight and was well hydrated. And there's no potable water on top of that, on top of that limestone bluff whatsoever. And, uh, they ask her, well, where have you been? And she says, I don't know. All I know is I was playing around the camper one minute. And the next minute I woke up up there. So, you know, I sure would have liked to have found her. I don't know. Uh, I tried. Uh, unfortunately, Van Ost is a very common name. And, uh, you know, there was there was no one that I talked to that knew of a Catherine Van Alst. Um, but we know she was a historical figure because her pictures in the Kansas City Star uh, news story. Um, do you know? Do you know if she was wearing shoes on top of that bluff? Because that's, as you know, where she was wearing flip flops, hmm. shower sandals, and a bathing suit. But yeah, interesting. Yeah, good question about the shoes. Yeah, she had her shoes. 
Because that's the common denominator of a lot of these disappearances. If they appear somewhere else, you know, first of all, the shoes are left behind and then they appear somewhere else. The ones who are, who, who can I say, recovered or reappear, even, you know, a two-year-old that appeared 60 miles away, no shoes and appears totally unharmed. I mean, this is really incredible stuff. And, you know, I know that David is reticent to, to talk about any uh, paranormal aspect of it because he wants to get credibility to the story. But as you said, if we were all having a beer, you know, yes. the three of us in a you know fireplace would probably be saying otherwise. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, and I, I admire his journalistic credibility and his... Uh, right. Um, you know, he doesn't speculate. He doesn't make assumptions, doesn't speculate, doesn't draw conclusions. What he does is he does a very neat job, like any good investigator would do, of, um, you know, compiling, uh, just, you know, doing a spreadsheet, doing an Excel spreadsheet. And uh, with that, he's been able to find all these commonalities and really develop this into uh, what turns out to be a worldwide phenomenon. And I'm pretty sure that the national parks and U.S. Forest Service are not too happy about that work because they make a lot of money from park entrances and the tickets and all that, and they don't want the bad publicity, but people should know. But anyway, but go back, going back to your story, I, I want to go back for a second with Toby. I remember I asked you during our first uh, interview about Toby and what happened to him, and, and there were a few things that were not, didn't make sense, and, you know, why would he all of a sudden disappear from the map? Can you tell us from this new installment what you found about Toby and also the FBI agent friend of yours, Frank, and some of the things that he told you and he apparently lied to you? Tell me more. Yes. You know, and I've had some very unflattering uh, responses from uh, law enforcement. And you know what? I'm not trying to tar everyone with the same brush here. I've got nothing but respect for law enforcement. I was a member of law enforcement as a prosecutor for years. And, uh, um, but the truth is the truth. It's veritas, right? It's the truth. And right. uh, the guy did tell me um, incorrectly that he had passed away. The story goes like this. I was in the early 80s. Um, and I don't remember if I put it in Incident at Devil's Den, but um, Tammy, uh, Toby's ex, contacted my wife um, in the early 80s and uh, she had married a long-haul truck driver who was taking a load from – they were living in the Los Angeles area, and he was taking a load to uh, Detroit, Michigan. And she was going to ride with him. Uh, you know, their kids were staying with Grandma and Grandpa, so it was just them two on the road. She'd never been on the road before, so she's traveling with her husband and said, you know, we're going to pass right by right by uh, Lansing, Michigan. You guys want some company? And we're like, sure, we'd love your company. Um, so she stopped by, and uh, – we, I wanted to talk about Toby a lot more than I had a chance to do, but it was a little awkward with her new husband there. Uh, but what she was able to say uh, was that um, Toby had a problem uh, with alcohol. And, you know, it wasn't so much that he was a day drinker or a frequenter of bars. Um, but during the morning, he was fine. During the afternoon, he was okay. During the early evening, he was nervous. And he was terrified, terrified at the prospect of closing his eyes and going to sleep. And he would begin a couple hours before bedtime just pounding the vodka uh, until he passed out. Um, that was his way of avoiding, you know, because when you're asleep, you're vulnerable. And that's when the monsters come in. So, 
You know, and I, I can somewhat uh, relate to that. I, I can't deny that I had my struggles, too, uh, especially with the night and going to sleep. Um, you know, I still uh, suffer from PTSD-like symptoms. Uh, for instance, I won't, I won't cut across an open field ever. I'll walk a mile around, around if I have to, but uh, I, I, I just feel terrified, vulnerable at the, at the idea of walking across an open field. So Toby's, uh, you know, when, when you drink like that, you know, you're robbed of your REM sleep and it has all kinds of ramifications and, uh, you know, things can go downhill pretty quickly. And, um, and by the way, too, just, for, for the listeners, I mean to, to interject, but for the listeners, if, if what we're discussing here doesn't make sense or there's some disconnects, I highly suggest that you go back to our interview from 2018, March 2018, and listen to it first. That that way, when you come back here, if you haven't listened, a lot of what we're going to be discussing will make sense. I just don't want to repeat too much of what we did before. Yes. In, in, in a sentence, uh, my friend Toby and I were um, abducted by aliens from a campsite, in uh, a remote campsite at Devil's Den State Park in northwest Arkansas in 1977. So, But, yeah, Toby... Uh, drank so much that it had a terrible effect on his life and uh, interfered with his with his job. He was discharged from the Air Force early. I don't know the circumstances of his discharge and, and wouldn't speculate. Um, and he he had just a sad life. I, I tried to contact him in 1981, uh, two years, three years after I, I uh, got out of the military, and I had his dad's phone number in Flint. Because remember, we worked together for three years. We were, we were tight. And um, I called his dad, and I said, I'm trying to reach my old friend. Uh, is he around? Pardon me, just one second. Um, is he around? And his dad said, uh, no, I'm sorry. Toby is uh, stays here now and then, but uh, I'm not sure where he's at, which to me implied he might be homeless uh, or at least insecure housing wise. And, uh, so I said, well, please take my number and have him call me as soon as you see him again. And he promised he would, he knew who I was. So, uh, I thought, well, I'll hear from him sometime soon. And, you know, six months passed and I hadn't heard from him. And I called the old guy back and the number that, uh, I called was disconnected. And Tammy was able to fill in the dots. What, what happened was that, uh, Toby was going from job to job. His employment was very, uh, insecure. And, um, he, uh, was continuing to drink and, uh, it was a, a sad story in that he was, uh, the family made the decision that Toby could take over the family home because the dad had passed away. So they decided to deed the home to Toby and hopefully that would allow him to have some kind of security. And what happened was he lost it for non-payment of taxes and ended up without a house anyway. So um, she has no idea where he had been since. Um, and uh, yeah, in the in the mid eighties, I, I spoke with an FBI agent, uh, someone I was working with, and uh, we kind of became friends. And we'd have a beer at the at the bar on the weekends on Friday night after work. And uh, I asked him, I said, you know, I'm trying to locate a, a buddy of mine I was in the Air Force with. Do you think you could help me find him? And he said, and this is FBI humor, 
sure, I can find anybody so long as they're not a fugitive, you know. And I kind of feigned a laugh because, I mean, that's kind of their job. And um, so he had a good laugh. And uh, he said, I can't open a, an official investigation, but uh, what I can do is see if I can uh, if I can help you out, uh, you know, as, as a friend. And uh, so he asked me to give him everything, write down everything that I could possibly think of. Uh, in regard to my friend, uh, include a picture, um, you know, his likes, his dislikes, uh, what I knew about his family. And, you know, you learn a lot about a guy if you work with him on a night shift for three years. So I did. And I gave it to him. And he said, yeah, I'll see what I can dig up for you. So some, uh, oh, my gosh, uh, two weeks, maybe two weeks, two and a half weeks later, I believe. Uh, it wasn't the next week. He calls me up and says, meet me at the bar. I got some information on your buddy. And I said, great. And um, hung up and uh, he was got to the bar. He was late getting there. Um, but when he got there, I could see when he walked in the door, he, you know, it was going to be bad news of some kind. And he came over and sat down and, and said, Terry, I got bad news for you. Um, I'll get right to it. I'm afraid your friend is dead. And I said, Dad, how, you know, Frank, how can how can this guy be dead? He's a young man. And he says, Terry, I know, I understand, but it was an automobile accident uh, out of Flint on 94. Um, it was a crossover accident and two cars involved and your friend didn't make it. I'm very sorry. And I'm stunned. And he's like, look, Terry, you know, you've been around the block. You know how things work. This is life. And I suggest you process it and move on. And um, I was stunned. And, you know, I could have so easily picked up the phone and called the Michigan State Police and verified that. I mean, I, I knew the guy. To, I knew the guy to talk to, and I could have easily done that, and I didn't. And I took took his word for it. Uh, and yeah, he did tell me uh, a lie. And I think the reason that he did that, uh, because all the FBI agents, all the federal agents I've ever worked with or known, were all stand up people. Uh, and I think that somewhere there's a federal file that says these two guys aren't supposed to get together. Uh, I think they're afraid that we would you know, put a story together and take it on the road or sell it or do something with it. So you think uh, somebody got to him? Yeah, I think so. And you know, Robert Hastings, uh, who's a, a, you know, who Robert is, yes, I'm sure you probably interviewed him, uh, is a friend of mine. And he said, yeah, that's not uncommon. He says, they'll, they'll do everything. Government, government will do everything they can to keep the two of you apart from one another. I haven't interviewed Robert, but I definitely know about him. Yeah, very knowledgeable guy, especially when it comes to, you know, we were on a nuclear base, a uh, SAC base, and uh, he's very familiar with uh, things like what happened to Toby and I, um, you know, happened at, you know, remote missile silos and uh, launch control facilities and the like. And it's interesting because he verified for me that um, whenever this happens, the Air Force does uh, what he called, you know, bust up the band, uh, all the all the players are separated, uh, reassigned, um, discouraged from uh, hanging out together. And you know, there's an unusual anomaly that I found um, because I kind of took the David Politis approach. You know, I included a a um, in my first book. I put a uh, email address in the epilogue of the book, and I said, "Look, you know, I'm not a doctor or or, or a therapist or anything." But if you've had a weird experience, something similar to this, or if any of this resonates with you and you want to talk about it, shoot me an email. 
You know, I promise I'll email you back. Well, I've got over 1,500 emails from people. Uh, and about 600 people sent me really cool stories. Uh, you know, other people will mention, yeah, I saw a saucer dart through the sky, or yeah, we saw this. But some of these people had had incredible experiences. And uh, uh, I took the time to kind of verify, not to kind of, but to verify them as much as I could, speaking with the people in person and, you know, judging their uh, not that I'm qualified to do this, but trying to, as a, as a layperson, to, you know, judge their cognitive uh, abilities and uh, status and uh, the veracity of what they're saying. And uh, I found some very, very credible people. Uh, and it's odd because the demographics are most of the people that were abductees or people that have had really incredible experiences um, were coming forward at age 50 or over. Um and the really credible group of stories, um, there were fewer that were under 50. Um, so I, I just, I found that interesting. And I included 30 of the very best of those stories in my second book, uh, uh, The Reckoning. But about Toby, the- but about Toby, you found out that in 2007, he was still alive. September and this, this- 2007 is his date of death. I'm sorry, I digressed. Yeah, when I, in 2017, well, when was when it that was, Frank gave you that information? 1982, was it? 1982. So, so many years. We're talking about what? Oh, my God, 25 years. 25 years? We could have been, I mean, we could have been together. We should have been together barbecuing chicken like we used to and, uh, right. you know, telling stories as old men. I mean, it's just a sin. Do you know what he died of? Alcohol-related is all hmm. that I was able to get. And I got that, that secondhand, but I would believe it. And you never contacted Frank again because obviously he's putting people in jail all the time. Uh, they're they move all the, all over the place, and their identities are pretty hidden, isn't it? Sure, sure. You spend a lifetime putting people in prison. You don't want to make your your address real public. So I kind of understand that. So about your cousin Gerald and your friend Ernie, tell me more about that. Sure. Uh, these are stories I really wanted to include in the first book. Um, my cousin Gerald, uh, well, they're both both kind of sad stories, but my cousin Gerald was going through the same thing I was going through. Uh, he lived in northern Arkansas, nowhere near Devil's Den, northern Arkansas, kind of in the middle. And uh, he uh, was having a problem seeing little clowns in his room. And... Uh, you know, I, I got in all these letters I get from people, I've been told that they've, as a child, remember between the ages of four and eight, seeing clowns, you know, monkeys, owls, orbs of light, little gray men. I think they can appear in a way that the child will find most benign. And uh, like me, you know, when he first saw these little clowns, he thought they were kind of comical. Um, but then he realized that they were abducting him. And um, then it wasn't funny anymore. So like myself, when the, when the clowns came for him, he would, you know, sometimes go with them. And then sometimes he would scream bloody murder and wake up the entire household. And he had the same physical reaction that I had in that his, um, his grades dropped at school. Um, you know, sleep was hard to, was hard to come by for all of us because I couldn't sleep. And uh, if I did sleep, I'd have a nightmare and scream and or have the, these things appear in my room and scream and wake up the entire household. So they were going through the identical thing down in Arkansas. And my cousin Gerald had a room with uh, two younger brothers 
um, that slept in bunk beds in the same room. And they never heard or saw a thing. And, you know, for me, I had two sisters, older sisters, across just across the hall in their room. And they never heard a thing. Although my 76-year-old sister did tell me she wouldn't read my book. But she did tell me that she felt guilty that when the lights came in the window and they couldn't find me at night when I was a little boy, that they felt guilty they couldn't be of more help. So, and she didn't want to talk about it any further. But I, th- I thought that was kind of a significant uh, admission. But poor Gerald uh, came to visit us. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the way that poorer people vacationed back in the day. You know, you would go to a relative's house and they would, uh, it would be kind of like an all-inclusive. You know, they would feed you and water you and, uh, um, you know, play cards, listen to music, kind of have, uh, have fun. And, uh, you know, then... Maybe the next holiday, Thanksgiving or whatever, it'd be your turn to go to their place and uh, they'd return the favor. So um, they used to come to St. Louis uh, once a year in the summer. And uh, so I saw Gerald every year. Um, But we weren't close. But uh, he came then one summer and um, we were both eight years old. And he told me that um, because he had heard his mother talking about – you know, Terry's problems. And uh, they, uh, they, were, they were very strict Southern Baptist. And uh, in their religion, they were certain that these things were, um, were demons and were not alien in any way, shape, or form. So the cure was to have Gerald baptized and rebaptized and have him at church with the laying of hands and uh, what they really did, I'm sure it was inadvertent, I'm sure they were well-intentioned, but they shifted the burden of um, what Gerald was going to uh, onto his shoulders. And he told me that, you know, that he was told that um, because he doesn't, uh, sometimes he doesn't think properly, then uh, in a moment of weakness, he lets the demons come in, and that's how they sneak in. And, uh, and he believed that. And I, and I told him, I said, Gerald, I don't think that's right. And I don't think that's right. I think these things are, are monsters of some kind. I don't, I don't think that they're, uh, demons at all. And he, he, uh, he just wasn't sure. And the poor guy was just having a heck of a time. And, uh, he wanted to know, I had made an attempt with my friend Ernie. I knew where my dad kept a, a revolver an old antique 32 caliber revolver. Uh, and, you know, if, if, if you think that your kids don't go through your stuff, uh, you know, I think you're maybe a bit naive because I think all children do that. I know I sure did. And I found my dad's 32 revolver uh, in the back of the headboard of this bed, of their bed, mom and dad's bed, along with the flashlight. And, uh, I knew that in his in his underwear drawer there was a box of 32 cartridges and a really cool old box, you know, a red and white box or red and yellow box. And um, I, I talked with my friend Ernie and I told him I got a plan. I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot these things dead. And um, he said, Well, you know, if you're gonna do that, have you thought about uh, practicing? And I'm like, No, you know, I never I re- never really had given that any thought. I mean, I was. I was used to seeing on television, you know, you point, you pull the trigger, and the bad guys drop dead. Well, I thought that I could solve my problem by shooting these four little monkeys that would sneak into my room and take me 
I shoot, I would shoot all four of them dead. And then there would be evidence that, yeah, these things aren't human. They're monsters of some kind. And, uh, I've been telling the truth all along and, uh, you know, the consequences can be what they are. So Ernie said, well, let's, you know, let's do, let's do a target practice. He says, you know, you need to make sure you know what you're doing. So I had, uh, I had been carrying around a, you know, a cast iron toy gun, you know, practicing twirling it on my fingers. So I was just familiar with the feel of a revolver, but I didn't realize how much heavier the real thing was, you know, to hold in your hand. So we made a plan to meet at the city park about a block from us. And, um, you know, here we are two eight year olds and we got, a. I got my dad's 32 in my pocket and, uh, it's loaded with six rounds and I have six cartridges in my pocket. And, um, Ernie meets me at, uh, my house in the morning, uh, on his bike. He's got two targets drawn on cardboard for us to shoot at. And, uh, we ride down to the park early. It's like 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning. There's nobody out there. There's a woman on the far end of the park walking a little poodle. And, um, Ernie sets up these two targets by this big sycamore tree, based on this big sycamore tree by the, by where the swings were. And uh, I pull out the gun, and uh, Ernie's like, let me see that. And I'm like, no, no, no. And he's like, no, you, no don't you know you got to take the safety off? And, of course, we were both kids. Neither of us knew Smith & Weatherson revolvers did not have safeties. They, there, there was none. It was simply uh, – you know, like the camera, point and shoot. Right. It was double action. When you pulled the trigger, the hammer went all the way back and then fell forward, you know, in the flash of a millisecond and discharged the gun. So we're in this tug of war with the gun going back and forth. And, uh, and uh, I keep opening. The only lever that I can find opens the chamber and, and so the cylinder slides out. And, you know, we put it back in and nothing that looks like a... Um, a safety and in this back and forth motion somebody's finger and I'm pretty sure it was mine uh, pulls the trigger and you know I had only heard guns go off on television I'd never heard one go off in real life and this was the loudest noise I'd yeah. ever heard in my life and it um, you know scared us and we're immediately like are you okay are you okay and by the grace of God you know uh, neither of us were shot like my grandmother used to say, God takes care of uh, fools and drunks and little boys. So we were, we were very fortunate. The little old wait lady at the uh, other end of the park, though, was uh, it picked up her dog and was running way faster than any seventy-five-year-old woman should run. And um, I'm sure that that triggered a call to the police. And I put the gun in my pocket. We both reeked of gun smoke, um, and we got on our bikes and. Uh, rode back to the house. Actually, we met a, a police officer who was headed down Michigan Avenue. We're headed up Michigan Avenue. Uh, and he pulls over and rolls down his window. And I have this pistol in my right pocket of my blue jeans. And it's clearly, you can see the outline of a pistol with the, uh, the white end of the, you know, the faux antler horn uh, rips sticking up out of the top of my pocket. So I'm leaning forward and I've got my arm draped over my leg in this awkward position. And he kind of looks at me like, you know, what's wrong with you? And he asked, did you boys, uh, did you boys hear any, uh, thing that sounded like a gunshot? And, uh, my friend Ernie 
pipes up and says, uh, yeah, there were some bigger kids down by the swing set with firecrackers. Uh, you should go check, go ask them. And uh, so he pulled away and we were okay. Because uh, the last thing I wanted to do was get busted because that would have been a big deal. Went back and put the gun away and gave her, gave my friend Ernie a uh, one bullet and the uh, empty cartridge as a souvenir and uh, cleaned the thing up with an oily rag and put it back. So um, that, 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 was, that was my adventure. Uh, my friend Ernie, unfortunately, uh, yeah, he lent me a bayonet. I, I, I told him, I said, I can't use the gun. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid of it. I can't use the gun. Uh, but I'm going to try a knife. And all I had for a knife was a, a little pen knife with a three-inch blade. And uh, Ernie, I'll tell you, what a pal. He, um, he lent me um, a war relic that his father brought back from World War II. And it was, some, I don't know what nationality it was, but it was a steel, carbon steel blade. Uh, it was a bayonet about uh, 14 inches long. And uh, I thought, yeah, this will do. This will do, you know. And uh, I hid it under the bed, and I had the, the plan to stab these things to death. And, uh, you know, that, that didn't work out either. Uh, but the sad part is that my friend Ernie uh, drowned that summer uh, while on vacation at Lake of the Ozarks. Um, and that's, that's, that was the first death my, uh, my cousin uh, Gerald took his life uh, with his father's rifle at age 19. Um, and you know what? I, I think that, you know, that a lot of people out there don't have the support that they need to get through uh, an experience like this. Uh, you know, there's so much uh, doubt and so much, um, uh, there's so little support. If, if, you, if, you, if you're not fortunate enough to be with someone who's understanding and will listen to you, um, it can be a very lonely place. And I'm glad you're saying that, Terry, because I, I don't know why. I, I guess I, I never like to brag about what I do, but I'm glad that we're still around for over 12, 12 years and people seem to respect what we do. Because right at the, be at the beginning, you know, yes, we got people listening and subscribing, but there was the outsiders who were listening and would say, oh, this is just a bunch of conspiracy theorists you know, talking about demons and blah, blah, blah. But that's changing. Now people are really, truly listening. Why? Because the media is finally talking about that, which is not the best representation of what I'm trying to do because there's another angle that I'd like to discuss with you later in part two, which is think that's what's coming. And we need to very, be very prepared. And I've always said it. If disclosure ever comes from the media or from our so-called leaders, you should question it. But... Back in those days, you didn't have the support. You didn't have the, the internet. You know, we are lucky to still have people who are getting up there in age. But, you know, the wonderful Dr. Sprinkle, Leo Sprinkle, yeah. who is yeah. always welcoming people to talk to him, Yvonne Smith. And, you know, we lost some yeah. good people, too. But there are a lot of people out there willing to listen to anyone who yeah. has these stories. But if you go to the mainstream psychologist or psychiatrist, you better be very, very careful because a lot of times when you open your mouth about UFO, ET, or an encounter or an experience, the first thing they're going to do, they're going to label you as a lunatic or a threat to society. Would you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. My best friend happens to be a practicing psychiatrist here in Dallas, and uh, I met him at a MUFON meeting. 
And uh, he had showed up at a MUFON meeting uh, that I spoke at. And he he told me that, yeah, you know, I've been a practicing psychiatrist. He's a little older than I am uh, for years. Still sees a full patient load every week. And uh, he said, you know, people have told me these stories. And he said, but I can't find any underlying psychopathy or any kind of behavioral issues, uh, you know, mood disorders, anything of the like that would account for uh, confabulation or or just uh, delusions. He said, these people are rock solid and they're telling me this stuff. And he told me, he says, you know, I was taught in medical school. Somebody comes in and said they've been taken by little green men, that that's a delusion. And um, he says, no, I don't think so. He said, I think it's a real phenomenon. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I had the, I got, I got hooked up with an organization called Opus, O-P-U-S. Yvonne Smith used to be on their board. I, I'm still on, I was on their board for a year, but I'm now on their board just as an advisory member. Uh, but they're at O-P-U-S, the Organization for Paranormal Understanding and Support, opusnetwork.org. And they give, um, they provide support. They're a nonprofit organization. have been around since 1994, and they do a lot of good things for people. Um, they can't find. They can help refer you to a uh, a practitioner, a therapist, counselor, psychiatrist, somebody who is uh, friendly toward the topic, not dismissive of it. Um, as well, they have a, they have an online forum for people for support. So, you know, they they do a good job too. Um, they certainly do, and, and Opus has been around for a while. Well, let me go back to, the. I'm thinking of psychiatrists, I'm thinking of the prescription medication they probably administer to, to the people who see them, but speaking of medication and pills, you have a part of your story that I don't think you shared with me the last time. You had a nurse that came to your home, out of the blue, right, and uh, gave you pills. Tell me about that story. Yes, I will. You know, that has a brief mention, an incident at Devil's Den. Okay. Uh, I call it an incident at Devil's Den. I refer to it as the bucket of pills they sent us home with. Um, and, I, you know, I worked in a hospital, and I, I had a physician's desk reference, 1973 edition, I believe. And it had glossy color uh, photos in it of every single pill that was um, uh, approved by the FDA for inclusion in, in, in your formulary, uh, in your pharmacy. Um, and I, uh, they gave me these pills and I took them home and I, and I looked at them and I looked, tried to look them up in the uh, PDR and they weren't in there. They were, they were manufactured. You know, you can buy your own capsules if you're a pharmacist and make your own medication. So these, these were privately made. And, uh, I called my, uh, my friend, at the hospital, because you know, I worked at the hospital squadron. I had friends there. Um, and I called a nurse or an RN there that, that I was very, my wife and I were both friends with. And uh, I called her up and I said, um, you know, I, uh, I want to talk to you about these pills that I was sent home with. And she said, yeah, you and Toby were both sent home with the same, with the same medication. And I said, yeah, but what are they? I don't find them in the formulary. I don't find them in our formulary. I don't find them in the PDR reference book. What are they? And she says, gosh, you know, I'm really busy right now. Can I uh, swing by on, on the way home? Uh, yeah, I want to swing by and say hi. I said, sure, you're more than welcome to, which was, I figured out that, you know, she knew that I was being investigated by the OSI and probably didn't want to talk on the phone, and I don't blame her. Very clever. So, uh, yeah, this nurse would show up 
they gave me these pills uh, unannounced. She showed up the first night um, and said, you know, hi, I'm here to do your pill count. Uh, and she was very formal. Uh, I did not recognize her. She was not a member of, the, of our hospital squadron. And uh, she wore no insignia of rank and no name tag and just inter- introduced herself as Janet. And uh, she carried a, a, a medical chart with my name on it. And uh, a, a little thing like a pharmacist would use, that little tray um, that has a, uh, a tube at the end so they can open it up, they can dump the pills out. Dispense the pills bag, right. Count them and then dump them back in the bottle. So I was taking these pills as directed. And uh, by about day four, I'm, I'm, I'm stupid. I mean, I can't find my wallet or keys. I'm not reading. I'm watching cartoons. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've gone downhill mentally. And my wife comes to me and says, I got to talk to you. I, I think these pills you're taking are making you stupid. And I said, I don't know. I'm supposed to take them. And she's like, you know what? Do you trust me? Trust me. Don't take these anymore. They're not helping you. They're hurting. And I said, okay, I, I will trust you. And I did. And, uh, you know, I said, well, what about Nurse Janet? You know, she's going to come by for a pill count. And she says, easy. She said, you know, every meal, when you finish your meal, just in case she comes early, because uh, we're three times, I took the pill three times a day one, with meals. So she said, flush one away down the toilet after breakfast, flush one away after lunch. And if she comes for her pill count, you know, it's after dinner, like it always is. She always came at the same time. She always came around 6.30 p.m. right after we ate and would do the daily pill count. So she was predictable. Um, And, you know, four days later, I started to feel much, much better and um, got my wits back about me. And um, Nurse Brenda came by and uh, she came by after 7. I told her I'd have company until 6.30. So I think it was 8 o'clock when she showed up. And, uh, you know, she came in and gave me a hug, gave my wife a hug. And, uh, you know, we had a beer and we sat down and I told her the whole story. And I said, where did those pills come from? And she says, well, I can tell you this, that they weren't made in our formulary, that they came here from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And I said, "Okay," And that didn't mean anything at the time. But, of course, years later, you know, Wright-Pat has kind of reputation for being – uh, for maybe having something to do with the UFO phenomenon. Right. Whether it's true or not, who knows. But that's where the pills originated from. Uh, and then they were repackaged from the, to be, come from the pharmacy at Whiteman Air Force Base. God, no, I wish I'd saved just one of those pills. I, I really would love to have known what they were giving me. Do you and think, you know, I look at, do you think oh, it would have been uh, a slow form of cyanide poisoning? No, I don't think cyanide. Um, I'm just thinking chemistry here. Um, but I think it was something that would um, cause some steep mental decline. I, I really do. I think they were poisoning us. Uh, I mean, that's a heck of a statement to make. But, you know, I'm left with that conclusion. I took them for four days and I was, um, you know, dumb as a fire plug. <laughs> I mean, because if I you think about the- what happened to your friend Toby. He yes. immersed himself into alcohol too, right? I mean, not you, but he did. So they probably knew that eventually his life, his his family would be broken because of his alcoholism. And he probably went, would end up that way. In your case, you were not an alcoholic, correct? No, no. Right. I mean, 
now, now, let me be clear. I had my struggles and I had trouble. I had fear of going to sleep. So, you know, in the, in the eighties, uh, they, they, they prescribed benzodiazepines, you yeah. know, Valium and that ilk, um, pretty freely. And I took some of those for sleep and they helped in the beginning, but you know, it's like having a glass of wine before you go to bed, you know, then you have two, then you have three and it's just a slippery slope. Yeah, you develop a resistance to it. Absolutely. So, you know what I do I, over the years, I, I take one 25 milligram gram of uh, Benadryl, diphenhydramine. Um, I take one a night. That's a low dose, and uh, that that seems to help me sleep. And uh, I also use headphones and listen to meditative apps so that I don't hear the ambient sounds in the house, you know, that, that freak me out. Um, but, yeah, I wonder what kind of damage Toby may have suffered mentally uh, if he'd taken, you know, the full bottle of that medication. Do you think he took the entire bottle? You know, Toby was by the book kind of guy. Mm. I could see him doing that. I really could. But if the if your friend at your squadron told you this person does not belong to our squadron here, why do you suspect? And while I was reading your book lately, I've been reading a lot about the real men in black. Right? Everybody talks about men in black, but they never talk about women in black. And it doesn't mean that they're black. It's just that. The the proverbial ones, you know, you see them with, or you, people have seen them with just the black eyes. Do you think yeah. that there's are, there are women also that perhaps, who knows, I'm just going to speculate here for a moment. All these people that knock on somebody's house and they have a black car outside and they have no emotion whatsoever. They do a task. They try to tell the people, hey, you do this or things are going to happen. It almost sounds like this person was emotionless did the task as, as planned and did not belong to your hospital. What do you think? I think that describes her to a T. I, I, I think that that's 100% accurate. I don't, you know, I think, I believe she was a nurse. I mean, I worked around enough medical people that had she been masquerading as a nurse, I think I'd have picked up on it, uh, maybe. Uh, so I think she was a genuine nurse, but she was no one that uh, my friend Brenda, uh, from a physical description, knew of. Uh, anywhere. She wasn't from our hospital, which also raises the issue of how do you get, if you're from outside, you know, you're, maybe you work at the local hospital and you're contracted, um, you know, you're going to have to get a special pass. You're going to have to have a background check. Uh, you know, I think anybody less than a federal agent, how, how are they going to get, how are they going to gain entry through the gate? You know, I had a little sticker in the front of my car and an ID. And every time I came through that gate, um, you know, I had to wait for the, for the guard there, the, to look at my, and even the ones that knew me would look at my picture, look at me, you know, look in the car, um, before they, you know, allow me entry into the base. So, uh, this woman came into the base. Um, so I don't know. It raises a lot of questions. So you never found out who she was or what purpose? No, she came every day for a full two weeks. You know, and when we were done, you know, she would always, um, you know, she never took my blood pressure. Um, but the only thing that I had to do was I had to remember to act stupid uh, because I didn't want her to see that I, that clarity. You're getting better and I'm more accurate and, and alive, if you will. Yeah, because she looked me over. She would look me over pretty good. And I um, I think she was looking to see if my uh, my mood, my affect, 
uh, matched the uh, desired result. And, uh, you know, uh, I think I think we did it right. We got through it. Uh, I'm glad I didn't take those pills. But like I say, I'd given anything to have my hands on one. But when she suspected and she wanted to see you put the pills in your mouth, were you trying to just hide the pill and wait until she was gone so you can throw it away? No, she never once asked me to take the pill in front of her. She just came in and counted what was left in the bottle. That's interesting. Yeah, because I asked my wife. I said, you know, what do I do if she wants to see me take the pill? And she says, well, you just slip it between your tongue and your cheek and take a sip of water. Um, and if that doesn't work, take take one pill. But uh, then what we'll do is we'll take the capsules apart because the capsules you can take apart. She says, we'll take the capsules apart, dump them down the sink and fill them with flour. <laughs> we're white capsules. And, uh, <laughs> wow. I, I'm married to a very smart woman. I was going to say, I didn't want to imply, because a lot of times, and I've spoken to so many people who have had not similar stories, but stories and experiences. And unfortunately, a lot of people, because this is post-traumatic stress disorder for the rest of your life, the marriages suffer. And I would say that a very small percentage of their marriages remain And you're one of the lucky ones, I would say. I'm one of the fortunate ones. We're like uh, Betty and Barney Hill. Correct. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I count. We count ourselves as fortunate. Um, I mean, I can't remember, I honestly, Terry, I can't remember the last time I spoke to somebody who suffered of an, an experience decades ago who tells me, oh, yeah, I'm still with my husband or my wife. It was too, too hard for either or, and they couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I give my wife all the credit in the world because... You know, she's the one that had to put up with, um, you know, me having screaming nightmares, you know, two or three times a year. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel very fortunate that we've been able to uh, stay together, raise two fine children, and have a good life. That's something my friend didn't get the opportunity to do. What did they say? Well, let's start with your wife and then with your children. What did they say about you coming out with the, with the story publicly? Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you asked that. It's a good story. My wife and I decided that um, there was no reason to tell our children um, when they were growing up about what happened. Uh, and we kept it between ourselves. And I honestly had no intention of ever coming forward and writing a book or, or telling anyone about this. But I had those x-rays in 2012. And when I saw those x-rays, it, it validated the story and it reinforced that these things had actually put their hands on me. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't get through that. I just, that, that, um, ramp, ramped up the anxiety, ramped, you know, ramped up the nightmares. And, uh, I, uh, um, dealt with it as well as I could and finally decided, you know, well, you know what, if I can't, uh, if I can't get over this myself, then maybe I just need to embrace it. You know, maybe I need to speak about it and write a book about it. So we didn't tell our kids, I wrote the book. And we called our kids together. They're 40 and 35. And uh, I said, you know, you, and they knew that dad would have screaming nightmares through, you know, two or three times a year. Um, and I told my kids and they're both and of, of course, they're both scientists. Um, and um, my daughter is like, you know, well, you know, I love you and you're still dad. Um, But, you know, I just I have a problem with this, but it's okay, You know, it's okay. And I said, I don't care. You know, I just want you to know, not be surprised. As long as you still love me as dad, you know, we talk every day. We're still very close, um, but we don't talk about it. My son, on the other hand, um, 
admitted to me that he had seen um, privately. He admitted that when he was uh, 13 years old, uh, that he was awake in the middle of the night. And uh, he's sure he was awake. Uh, his feet were on the floor. He was sitting on the bed. And he saw a gray figure, a small gray figure, uh, peek around the door. And they made eye contact for a moment. And he didn't scream. He didn't, um, um, his reaction was, was muted. It was just, he saw it and that was it. And I said, why, did, why didn't you tell me? And he said, I, I, I was afraid to. And, you know, I think that speaks to the level of influence that these things have on us. And I think that because um, I know when I first started to write about this and when I first spoke about it, uh, I know when I spoke for the first time on your show, I felt guilty. I mean, it was it was everything I do to get through the interview because I, I really felt like I was violating some kind of sacred family trust, you know, like I was breaking a fiduciary duty to not talk about it. Uh, so that was hard to deal with. But. After every experience of speaking, it got easier and easier. And then I found that I felt better and better um, because it, every time I spoke, it validated the story. And, uh, you know, and, I, and, you know, I, I took the I took the stance that, look, I'm not going to try to convince anyone of anything. Believe my story or not. I, I, I have no problem with it either way. Um, you know, honestly, I'm telling it more for my benefit than I am anybody else's. But I mean, high on the list is number two is I think people should know the truth. They should know, but this stuff is real. Um, so when their cousin or their husband or their whatever comes to them and says, you know what happened to me? You know, then, 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 then listen, because it, it may be a may very well be a real experience. Well, you have no idea how many people listen to us who listen to us in private. And they tell me this is a subscription that I buy in private. I don't want anyone to know about it. And many of our guests, and even on my other show, Sanitas, some of these people and some doctors, medical doctors, listen to it. And they say, there's a part of me that always wants to know more. And I cannot get this information out there anywhere, but I feel very comfortable to know that I, and I say it like this, they say it. I'm glad that there's a tribe for me that I belong to. And uh, you're not alone, Terry, and no one who's listening who has gone through a lot of this. And there are so many people who walk in silence, you know, people in the airline industry, pilots, pilots yes. I've talked to in private who tell me I cannot even mention what I see. And they say, now that I have a more keen eye, because a lot of pilots, they see lights and they think, oh, it's just a shooting star of this and that. But some pilots who see, they see more and more. And, and they say that is one of the, what do they call it, uh, silent things that you cannot even discuss. Just to mention it to anyone, you'll be out of a job the next day. Sure. Academia is another field. Correct. I've got a good friend, 65 years old. He's a uh, history teacher for uh, Citrus College in Glendora, California. He's written several academic books, written academic papers, is well-respected, and uh, he published a book at the same time I did called Timeless Esoterica. His name is uh, Dr. Uh, Bruce Solheim. And uh, uh, Dr. Bruce um, and I, he, we, we figured out pretty quick we had something in common, and uh, we contacted, made contact with each other. I don't, I don't remember who contacted who, but um, he's like, yeah, he said, you know, I, I went to the uh, 
to the board of trustees and I told them I'm going to publish this book. And uh, he said, I've been a lifetime psychic and as was my mother and I'm going to come public with this. And uh, they said, okay, well, we'll get back to you. And he was certain they were going to fire him. And uh, they ended up uh, letting him teach a class on the paranormal in the evening division. Uh, it's not for credit, um, but I've been a guest speaker there almost every semester. Um, so, you know, times are changing because they, they, they embraced, uh, embraced the story. And, you know, th- this I, I want to I get out. And that is that uh, in 2019, um, in November 2019, I was invited to speak at Rice University along with Leslie Kane. Uh, it looks like Kane, but it's pronounced Kane. She's That's from the New York yeah. Times. You she's been with her. me here, yes. Yes. So Leslie and I spoke at Rice University. She spoke on the UFO phenomenon, and I spoke uh, on, on the abduction phenomenon. And um, it was it was a really strange time. Um the uh, head of their humanities department um, is, is, is a good friend of Whitley Strieber's. And uh, Jeffrey Kripal is his name. Uh, and Dr. Kripal is, uh, is a real gentleman. He had us there to speak, uh, no public, no uh, press, uh, just the two of us speaking to faculty, PhD candidates, and a few master's candidates in there, too, um, on the phenomena. And, uh, you know, this was the humanities department. He's the head of it. And I thought, you know, that's got to include the theology, theology department. How are they going to accept this, this idea? And, um, philosophy, uh, majors and the like. And, uh, well, and I both were overwhelmed with their, with their understanding and their kindness and their, uh, their willingness to listen. I was expecting, to see a room full of skeptics there with their arms folded. But no, I saw everybody on the edge of their seat asking, you know, very intelligent questions and nodding. And, uh, you know, uh, we were invited to speak uh, November 2020. But unfortunately, COVID stopped that. Um, So, yeah, I think times are changing a little bit. Um, Yeah, I don't think my book would have been anywhere nearly as well received had I published it five years earlier. So... My timing was spot on. I think it was because I, I remember my conversation with Dr. Leah Sprinkle and he cried on the show when he yeah. retold the story of you know, he loved being a university professor. And he was mm-hmm. doing this on his own time outside of working hours. And he was severely punished by by his superiors, by the dean. And he had to leave. And you know, it, how, how do you do that? You try to do good but then you're told not to. But I wonder, it makes me wonder, and I don't mean to sound pessimistic about this, but when you see the media talking about this, now the Navy talking about some of their patents that could change our reality, you probably have seen this lately in, in the mainstream media. This is unheard of. And you see interviews where people are being taken seriously. And I wonder, I wonder, Terry, if they are getting ready for something to fool the population, and I, I don't want to get too much into this because I have a segment three with a 15-20-minute uh, testimonial from a former intelligence agent that's going to just make people be on the edge of their seats, and it, I don't want to say too much about it. But do you think that they're getting ready to 
quote-unquote, artificially disclosed for nefarious purposes? You know what? I can say this. I can say my opinion, and that's all it is. I don't have any evidence, of course. Uh, but what I would do is I'd point to an actual event. Uh, on December 8th, the Jerusalem Post uh, carried an article. I found it on the Jerusalem Post, uh, same day, shortly after it was publicized. The professor. I mean, the, the yes, I know you were talking about. Haim Ashed. Uh, yes. Well-respected. He, he was in charge of Israel's space uh, protection, and he served as a general in the Israeli uh, Air Force for 30 years, then 10 years as a university professor. And I have friends in Tel Aviv who tell me that, you know, he is the uh, Buzz Aldrin of Israel. I mean, he is a well-respected man. And, you know, he came out with this story that um, uh, that Israel and the United States uh, are parties to a treaty with, uh, and I didn't like the term he used, I thought it was kind of sci-fi-ish, uh, with the Galactic Federation. Um, but it's a collection of different beings from different places that uh, form a confederate, uh, uh, you know, um, they're, they're one unit. They are a, uh, uh, their own little government that, that you deal with, like, uh, like NATO. And uh, we've had been, been under a treaty with them for many years. Uh, and, you know, and that kind of bears out that, that uh, Eisenhower story. But I won't go on to. But yeah, the 1954 said, treaty. That's still supposedly yep. happening. Yes. Uh, I think there may be some truth to that. I do. You know, and, and uh, that uh, Doty character was probably misinformation. Uh, but Dr. Rashad said that it's not time for disclosure until people understand. And these five words stuck with me as being incongruent. I don't know. I don't understand. Until people understand the nature of space and spaceships. And I read that and I thought, what? Um, that doesn't make sense to me, um, that people have to first understand the nature of space and spaceships. Uh, and I just found that suspect. So um, there's a lot going on. Um, you know. And then uh, Avi Loeb has his new book out as of January 26th that I haven't read yet, that I'm waiting to get my hands on, um, about you know, Amuamua. Uh, I'd like to read that. Um, About the space object? Yes. What do you think that is? I agree with Dr. Avi Loeb that it was extraterrestrial in nature, that it was an artificial device, not a natural device. Uh, and he says that not based on a guess, but he says that based on uh, on the acceleration. Um, you know, uh, asteroids uh, have water on them. That's why they have a tail. And when they're, you know, near the sun or near some heat source, they will, um, they'll gain speed. But this thing gained, um, I forget how many, uh, like 30,000 miles an hour. Um, and he had the trajectory clock. I mean, they've got the math uh, to prove that this thing was it somehow artificially accelerated, that it does not make sense uh, in Newtonian physics for this thing to have reached that speed. Uh, and taking that trajectory doesn't make sense. The reason why I brought this up, Terry, was because you remember back in 1997. This, that's the moment I moved to Arizona. I didn't see it, but 10,000 people saw this one-mile-wide object. I mean, yes. there were witnesses everywhere, including the governor of Arizona at the time, Five Simington. 
Yes. And this this individual, this former intelligence agent, explains what that really was. And if you want to know, folks, you have to go to segment three for that. But my concern about all of this is because it seems that things are converging, converging, converging. And if somebody were to come today and say, we are be- have been visited, you see them right now, all of a sudden, if we have the technology to fool the population in many ways, how would we discern if they are not, say, holograms and we have the technology, Project sure. Blue Beam or Sky Beam, it's called now, if yeah. we have the technology to hide military vessels up there and then hide them with holograms and start shooting down with lasers or whatever exotic weaponry they may have under an underground military base anywhere and say, look, they are attacking us. The whole world has to unite and we have to just be able to to fight as one planet. How will we know if this is true and it's not, and I hate to digress from your story into this, but I think there's a correlation here. How would we know that this is not a way to unite the world for other reasons? You know, for nefarious reasons. Correct. You know, I, I don't think we'd have a clue. I honestly God, don't think we'd have a clue. I mean, I, and you know, I, uh, I I used to scoff at the idea that if, if disclosure came, there'd be riots in the streets in Tokyo and uh, New York. But you know what? I'm not so sure. I don't I think mean, so. It depends, on, depends on how it's done. And um, if it's done for manipulative purposes, um, you know, I, 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 I don't rule that out at all. If it's done, like when was it? 1937? Is that when the the Orson Welles War of the World? War of the World was it? 1937? Am I right in that date? Around in the 30s, right? Yes, I think you are. Imagine this was New York, I believe. Yes. Imagine if this is done surgically orchestrated in every major city around the world. Multiplied that by, by, by thousands of cities instead of just one. In 1937, that was just a test run. Imagine, as you said, it has to be done correctly, and I don't think people would revolt. But if it's done with fear, and they start seeing people you know, being shot with lasers or what have you, they will be clamoring for help immediately. Yes, and accepting it. And accepting it. And that's my biggest concern. But we have to take a one and only break. And when we come back, I want you to discuss more of what you haven't dis- discussed in the past. And you added more in your new book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning. How can people buy the old book and the new book? They're both on Amazon. Um, incident at Devil's Den. And uh, the new one is Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Uh, number two this morning. Number, it was number one bestseller yesterday. I think we were in number two slot an hour ago. Uh, you know, we bounced back and forth, but uh, I've been in that bestseller list uh, as was Incident at Devil's Den. So I'm very proud that that wasn't a one-on. That it's been uh, it's been very well received. So uh, I also have a website if you'd like to see some images. TerryLovelace.com. I have the X-rays from my leg in 2012. I have a uh, a hand drawing of the craft that we saw uh, that I drew contemporaneous with the event. I drew it in 1977. So uh, that's on there as well, terrylovelace.com. Um, and thank you, No. Sure. I'll, I'll add this domain to. Do you still have the old domain as well? I don't. Okay. Um, so I'll replace with terrylovelace.com. Yes. If people want to contact me, they can, they can contact me at terrylovelace at gmail.com. Great. 
Well, folks, don't go anywhere. I have much more to discuss with Terry Lovelace. This is an incredible story. And for the last three years, people have been sending emails saying that they really enjoyed and how truthful, how truthful you are. The way you write it also, you feel immersed into the story. So much more when we come back. I'm here with Terry Lovelace. This is Mel Hasselbeck, and you are listening to Veritas. See you in the member section. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.